0: Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host,
1: Mike Adams. Hello everyone, welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and as always for letting us be part of your day as we wrap up another week. Hope you're safe and well. Lots to talk about on the show today. We're going to talk with former Secretary of Agriculture, now President and CEO of the National Dairy Export Council, Tom Vilsack. We're going to take a look at the impact of COVID-19 on US dairy exports. Also today, the latest on that court ruling on dicamba and that has a lot of people asking questions, a lot of farmers wondering what they can or cannot do with dicamba. We're going to talk with the president of the Illinois Fertilizer and Chemical Association about that ruling and and uh, what is the interpretation of it? What does it mean going forward for the use of dicamba? Also today we're going to talk with the Farmers National Company and talk about land values and where we're at, the impact of COVID-19 and where we may be going. So all that coming up on today's program. But we're going to start it off with Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report from our nation's capital. Jerry, how are you?
2: I'm just fine. Still working at home, um, but trying to keep up with, with, uh, with everything that's going on.
1: It's interesting. Some good news, surprisingly, shockingly good news on the jobs numbers today. Unemployment down, jobs up, uh, and that's encouraging. Hopefully, a sign of a rebound recovery for the economy. But it may make it harder uh, for those wanting to see another stimulus package. Maybe harder to get that done now if the Senate looks at this and says, "Hey, let's uh, let's wait a little longer and see if this uh, rebound continues."
2: Uh, yes, well, Senator Charles Grassley said uh, this week that the Senate won't uh, do anything on another package until after the July 4th recess. So we're talking about uh, about mid-July, uh, uh, and I'll be very interested to see how these uh, uh, employment numbers and unemployment numbers are by that time. Uh, of course, farmers have a different case to make in a way, and I think they're going to have to make that case Uh, pretty strongly if they're going to get more aid because people are aware that the government has poured out a lot of money to the farmers already.
1: So it'll be interesting to see where that goes, but you're right. It was already going to be July at the earliest, and it may be even longer depending on how these numbers go. Uh, Meanwhile, we continue to look at uh, the issues going on in our country um, with so much happening right now events continue to be canceled. The Indiana State Fair has been canceled. World Dairy Expo has been canceled. So it's really changing uh, uh, the ag calendar as we go through the summer and even now towards the fall.
2: Uh, yes, it certainly is. The The only summer meeting that I usually go to is the American Sugar Alliance, uh, which was to meet in Vail, Colorado. That's a relatively small meeting, uh, but they still canceled theirs. And so we're we're uh, you know we're pretty much off uh off the schedule. Uh I'll now be very interested to see how they're going to handle the meetings next winter, particularly the commodity classic which you know attracts thousands of people. You know, the, that and the American Farm Bureau convention are the two biggest. Uh but usually those are you know you have a lot of people seated pretty t- close together and and mingling close together in the trade shows. Uh, uh, I'll be interested to see how they how they manage that uh, next winter. Of course, a lot of this depends on what we see in terms of uh, COVID positive tests in the next few months, whether there are people hospitalized, whether there are more deaths. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci noted yesterday that the rate of, of hospitalization and death is going down, not sharply, but it is going down and he thinks that now the country can handle uh, an upsurge in the fall, if there is one.
1: There is also the question, and the criticism, which I agree that should be. This should be. questioned, should be criticised. If political leaders can allow protests, peaceful protests in the streets, thousands of people in the streets, because that is people's rights, and I agree with that. Isn't it also our right to? Gather in churches or at a fairgrounds or somewhere else. Uh,
2: well, I would think that it. Uh, I, I would think that it is. Uh, uh, of course, you know, a lot of these are now decisions by uh, local government and by uh, uh, and by organizations. Um, uh, and I, I, you know, I think a big test here is going to be at, in a few weeks. Will we have an upsurge in COVID cases because of the people who were out in the streets or not? If they if they don't get a lot of cases, then I think that will be more of a signal that you can have that you can have big gatherings.
1: It may be a a huge experiment happening right before us on that very issue. So we'll see what what happens besides the Senate waiting to see what they do or not do with the stimulus bill, what else is happening in Congress that we should be watching from an agricultural standpoint? A lot of talk about uh, ag carbon markets and what might be done there.
2: Uh, Yes, um, there was a bipartisan bill uh, introduced this week um, uh, by Senator Braun and Senator Stabenow and others uh, that would create a certification program through the Agriculture Department that would make it easier to establish these carbon markets. So that's a hopeful sign. Uh, but but the other important thing I uh, saw is that the House is planning to take up all the appropriations bills in the month of July. They're going to have uh, the subcommittee and, and uh, full committee markups the first two weeks and then put the bills on the floor the last two weeks of July. So then we should get some uh, idea of, of spending and also whether there will be an increase uh, in the uh, commodity credit corporation uh, spending limit. Uh, that I think would be the, actually the most important thing that we would see in July.
1: Yeah, it's going to be a while. When does the House come back into Actually, come back to Washington.
2: Well, the House is coming back uh, June thirtieth for three days, and then they're uh, leaving again uh, just before the fourth of July, and they will be back in session the last two weeks of July. However. They are, they are having performance sessions, and the committees are operating. So the whole idea here, there is some organization to it, is that the committees will do, the, will do their work, uh, uh, and the period of time when all the members need to be here in Washington uh, is short. Of course, they have this proxy voting, uh, but not that many members are using it. So I would expect most members to be here at the end of June, and then again the last two weeks of July. All right, and Jerry. Way, thanks for the I update. Add, yeah. I think if go there's going to, you know, if there's going to be another coronavirus package, it will be passed by the end of July because then Congress will go out for five weeks for the for the uh, conventions, political conventions, um, and to take the usual August break.
1: Okay. We'll watch. Thank you very much, Jerry. Take care. Thank you. All right. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. All right. What's going on with land values? What's the forecast for land values? We're going to talk with Senior Vice President for Real Estate Operations for Farmers National Company. Randy who joins us next on AOA.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture.
1: Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, let's discuss land values, where we are at, and what's the outlook for land values. Joining us now is Randy Dekoot, Senior Vice President, Real Estate Operations for Farmers National Company. Randy, thanks for being with us.
0: Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it.
1: Well, Well, like in a lot of areas, there was a lot of hope and optimism for agriculture, we started 2020, but everything got hit by the coronavirus. How has the uh, pandemic impacted land values?
0: You're exactly right. You know, a calendar flipped into 2020, and there was some optimism, and we could see that in the land market as uh, you know prices were steady to just a little bit stronger. Uh, but as things hit, there became a lot more caution, and rightly so, in the market. And it depended on, uh, to some degree, where you were. Uh, a place like Wisconsin had, has had multiple years of challenges for dairy producers. You know, those land values did take some uh, downturn, uh, just natural. I mean, there's a lot of stress there. Um, Iowa, for instance, uh, as all of this hit, got a little more cautious, too, because of You know, uh, so much ethanol produced there. You also had some dairy, but, uh, you know, it hit the uh, livestock producer in those markets uh, very hard. And I was a big livestock production state. So, Uh, But in general, good quality land, uh, you know, because there was less on the market for sale and enough demand for that with the times that uh, good quality, you know, more or less stayed steady to just, you know, somewhat softer. Lower quality, as usual, struggles a little bit more, but uh, not a huge amount of change. Is kind of waiting to see what happens.
1: So what is your outlook now moving forward? Well,
0: there, there are definitely some uh, opposing forces that could impact the land market or are currently impacting it today. And one is there remains a, a much lower supply of land on the market for sale. You know, it's normally a slower time of the year anyway, but Uh, With the uh, uh, ethanol uh, demand decline and low prices and challenges to livestock, uh, there's more caution in there and so there's less land for sale right now. So that helps support what is for sale, if it's good quality. Uh, Low interest rates uh, definitely help support land values, just the way that works. Also there's enough demand, you know, there's starting to be... And has been some uh, increased interest by investors, whether that's individual or, or funds, uh, looking at land as a long-term countercyclical to the other uh, investments or assets, uh, and and uh, being able to hold a, a real asset uh, is picking up interest for some. The uh, negatives out there, of course, are you know what what kind of crop year are we going to have? Will commodity prices rebound? Um, so they're better. Uh, Will the um, government um, support funding uh, from USDA be enough to offset a lot of the losses or not? So um, those things are out there. How long does this downturn in the economy go? And of course, we have the China trade issues too. So there's some negative things that can hurt current income more, uh, but the land values are, land as a long-term investment, and those values respond a little bit differently than just strictly uh, farm income.
1: Perhaps I'm, I'm really searching here for some positive uh, news in that, but when you say that there's not a lot of land uh, on the market, uh, could that be a, a good sign in that it means uh, we don't have a lot of farmers going out of business or looking to get out of business?
0: Yeah, you know. Agriculture and, and producers have, uh, you know, their working capital has declined since, uh, you know, the, the good years earlier and, you know, peaking in 2013 or so. So there have been some financial challenges, but uh, lenders and the producers have been in wise in managing that. So we haven't seen the, you know, increase in, I'll say, forced sales or encouraged sales. Um, But now I think we'll see a few more, you know, undoubtedly. uh, And it'll be regional, you know, whether it's dairy, uh, again, is struggling and and it's a lot of challenges, or regionally with, uh, you know, crop years and stuff. But I don't think we'll see um, a lot. I think there'll be enough uh, support funding to to help out. But there'll be some, but I don't think it'll overwhelm any of the demand like we saw in the 1980s. So uh, that lower supply of land for sale, um, that'll there will be more come on this fall and winter, like normal, uh, but it's going to be the, mainly the estates and inheritors and uh, those type who are normally the
1: sellers. So you don't see any uh, crash in land values coming? No,
0: I I, I don't think anybody in, uh, involved in agriculture sees that. I think it's such a cornerstone to the stability of producers and agriculture overall uh, that uh, at this time and you know unless you know that's a wild card unless things get worse or uh, there are other issues that come up that uh, hammer farm income uh, I think we'll probably make it through another year Um, it won't it won't uh, it won't uh, bring a lot better prices by any means, but if we can hold steady or soften, uh, you know, just marginally on land values, uh, I think that
1: will be very positive. We're talking with Randy Dickhut with Farmers National Company. What about cash rents? You see, uh, I I just would imagine there'll be an effort to renegotiate uh, some of those rates with landlords uh, uh, going into next year, especially with commodity prices the way they are. Uh, There'll be an effort to get those uh, uh, rents down some Mm
0: -hmm. i think that's something over the last few years again with these you know uh, more challenging times in in ag finance and ag profitability um most were surprised the cash rents didn't come down more but i think that's one due to the efficiency of producers and two you know looking at land values and and returns uh, to the landowner and stuff so and there really some good yield years and the extra you know mfp payments and so forth but uh, I do believe you are correct that you know if we continue on the trend that we are right now and commodity prices don't rebound and we don't have a good yields or something um, there will be challenges to the cash rent uh, there's just not currently the profitability in production uh, that there had been if we continue these low prices
1: let's get back to the interest in the land that is on the market uh, talk more about who's buying it is there much outside interest now out uh, other than farmers buying farmland outside of farming coming in and buying farmland
0: it, that will depend on you know regions and state rules about uh, um corporate investment and so forth and how that's structured. And of course, most of the land is owned by families and that could be a family corporation or LLC, you know, because, you know, um, farm families owning it or families who have inherited owning it and stuff. Um, This past year, I've seen a little more interest already in uh, investors and that could be individuals or Investment funds, as funds look at it as a long-term or a sustainability investment in in ag land. Um, of course, farmers still the predominant buying buyer of farmland, buying 60 to 80 percent of what comes up for sale. But I think uh, we're seeing a little more renewed interest in farmland as an investment by again those individuals and funds uh, as we work with both groups. Um, you know they're not aggressively buying, but they're showing more interest, and they're watching the market uh, to see when to enter and, and get in into it uh, more heavily.
1: As you look around the country, it, it's always it you know you try to you, you look at trends and things, but we know if someone really wants a particular piece of land, they're going to bid up and 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 try to get it, and that may you know, be an outlier compared to the rest of the country. Do you see any certain parts of the country where uh, the values are strongest?
0: Mm, you know, I think in most places, you know, the best quality is still the, you know, strongest value and holds that and and always has. And that's typically the farmers bidding that up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for good good quality permanent plantings in, in other parts of the country, the West Coast and Pacific Northwest and so forth, you know. The good quality that's high-value production, I, those hold uh, a little better. Uh, if they've got everything in place. Um,
1: a lot of it's still yeah. location, right? If it's a piece of land next to you comes up, <laughs> someone, somebody really wants it, they're more apt to bid that up, right? A- ab- absolutely. Yep. And that's the farmer,
0: buyer, <laughs> or the local investor, too.
1: Yep. Randy, thanks a lot. Appreciate the time. Good to talk with you. Always interesting to look at the where this is headed. Thank you so much.
0: You bet. Thanks, Mike. Bye.
1: Randy Dickoot, Senior Vice President, Real Estate Operations for Farmers National Company. Up next, we'll look at U.S. dairy exports with Tom Vilsack, CEO, President, U.S. Dairy Export Council.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture.
1: Now back to Mike Adams. And we're joined now by the president and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, former Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. Mr. Secretary, thanks for joining us. Hope you're well.
3: Mike, uh, I'm well, and I hope that you and your
1: family are well uh, also, and all your listeners are doing well. Thank you very much. Uh, let's uh, let's take a look at U.S. dairy exports. How have they been impacted by COVID nineteen? What are the latest numbers telling us?
3: Well, this is the eighth straight month of growth uh, compared to last year, which is, uh, I think, surprising to many of us. Uh, we saw strong uh, powder uh, sales in Southeast Asia, skim milk powder, non-fat dry milk powder, up twenty percent. Uh, uh, in terms of April of 2020 to April uh, 2019, Southeast Asia, uh, key year, a 61% increase in sales in Southeast Asia. So that became a very important market, especially since our number one market, in Mexico, was down a, a bit. Uh, we sold about 31,000 more metric tons of product uh, this time uh, than we had a, a year ago. So that, that's good. Uh, Way also up, uh, in large part because China has reengaged with the uh, with the U.S. in terms of whey sales, up 116% over last year. So uh, obviously uh, important there. Uh, the downside, Mike, and the, the impact of the virus, I think, has best been seen in cheese sales. It's down about 18% uh, over all of our major markets, in large part because food service, not just in this country but around the world, obviously was impacted and affected dramatically uh, by the virus. So that's uh, that's an area that we obviously are Concerned about, and we'll keep an eye on.
1: But some good news there. The, the, some of those sales up. Uh, and I think, as you said, surprisingly, considering all that's going on, what do you attribute the increase to? Well, I think it's
3: uh, first of all the, the the resiliency of the dairy industry, uh, the ability of our industry to to be competitive uh, in the world market. Uh, I think obviously uh, we continue to to deepen our presence in these export markets and send a message to the rest of the world that the dairy industry in the U.S. is going to be uh, focused on exports, not just uh, simply on domestic consumption. Uh, You know, it always helps when you sell about $160 million more in product uh, uh, this time uh, compared to last year. And we sold uh, nearly 58,000 metric tons of of overall dairy products uh, more this year than last year. So that's obviously a positive. Um, We obviously want to keep this momentum. Uh, The the key now is whether or not the uh, the virus will impact and affect the global economy. Uh, whether we'll see food service come back gradually uh, and eventually get to back to where it was or whether there's going to be a significant shift in consuming patterns, uh, whether we'll see more online purchasing of, of food products and, and restaurant-type uh, meals, uh, whether we'll see a continued increase in retail sales and a decline in food service. So there's going to be an adjustment. But uh, our industry, uh, I think, has reacted uh, uh, very very quickly and very well uh, to a very, very demanding circumstance and situation.
1: We're talking with the president and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, Tom Vilsack. How has your work uh, at the Dairy Export Council uh, on the ground in these other countries? How has that been impacted by COVID-19?
3: Well, in one sense, we continue to do the work. We, We established a center of dairy excellence in Singapore uh in an effort to try to create a permanent presence in that part of the world uh, to send again to reinforce the message that we're in this export market for for, to stay the problem of course is that this facility uh, because of restrictions and 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 shelter in place uh, uh, responsibilities we haven't been able to staff it fully and completely yet Uh, but we are excited about its its process so so in that sense we, we have to work from home we have to work virtually a lot of the trade shows uh, and uh, items that we had planned for this year to do to showcase U.S. dairy products and ingredients, uh, we are going to have to do virtually. Uh, we're going to have our first virtual trade show here uh, coming up in July, which is going to be interesting to see how that all impacts. Uh, we're restricted by travel, Mike. Uh, you know, Normally, I would have taken at least two or three uh, trips probably to Asia. Uh, perhaps down in Mexico. Uh, with these quarantines, uh, basically you just can't fly into Singapore for a day or two of meetings and then fly out. You have to basically stay quarantined for 14 days before you get to meet anybody in Singapore mm-hmm. or in Japan or in Korea. So uh, obviously that's uh, that's put a, a heavy emphasis on virtual meetings.
1: So you mentioned Mexico earlier. What's the situation there? Well, it's a combination
3: of things, Mike. Uh, I mean, first of all, uh, this is an economy that wasn't strong to begin with. Uh, the oil industry obviously has gone through some fits and starts with uh, with the uh, oil production uh, issues between uh, the Saudis and the Russians. Uh, hopefully that's getting worked out and we're going to see some stabilization in oil prices. But in the meantime, it's impacted and affected the Mexican economy. Peso was devalued, which uh, created some issues in uh, uh, and now the virus. Uh, and I, I suspect that the the uh, situation in Mexico is going to get worse before it gets better. Um, and that's obviously going to impact and affect the same uh, cascading effect that we've seen in the U.S. with food service and restaurants and tourism and so forth being reduced. So they're going to go through a rough patch. Uh, it's a number one market. But I think it underscores, uh, Mike, the importance of what this uh, dairy industry has done which is it's diversified geographically. It hasn't just simply focused on the easy market, the market across the border. Um, it has taken the leap into, into Southeast Asia. It has uh, done business in South Korea and Japan. It's also uh, involved in the Middle East and North Africa. So uh, the fact that we are uh, diversifying geographically, I think, is important. And I think we're learning more about these markets beginning to shift our, our product portfolio so it's more aligned with what the rest of the world needs. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've been able to see uh, growth in exports over the last couple of years.
1: Under different circumstances than which we are in right now, we would be talking a lot about USMCA about to kick in. Uh, What's the latest there? What impact do you see that having for dairy?
3: Well, uh, the the administration is working hard to put in place the the, uh, oversight, if you will, the process by which we'll assure that there is indeed uh, conformance with this agreement, uh, making sure that uh, the rules are interpreted in the same way. Uh, You know, the reality is that uh, come July 1, uh, that agreement kicks in. It starts the clock on the Canadian Class 7 pricing system. Within six months, Canada has to change that pricing system. So we're going to keep a very close eye on how they do that. Uh, if they do it right, uh, that should stabilize the, the powder market even more and avoid the disruption that was caused the last couple of years with Canadian underpricing uh, product uh, globally. Um, there is an additional uh, a quota access uh, to the Canadian market, which, if it's fully implemented and interpreted the right way, could lead to several hundred million dollars more in, in sales uh, in Canada, which would obviously be welcome news. On the Mexican side, uh, it's really about protecting our ability to use cheese names. As uh, the Mexicans uh, continue to work with the EU on their uh, free trade agreement, we we want to keep a wary eye on, on protecting cheese names so that we're not in a situation where the Europeans have a monopoly on the use of certain commonly used cheese names, which would make it harder for us to sell our cheese in that market.
1: Let's talk about China. The rhetoric between the U.S. and China, uh, concerning uh, the president saying he views the China trade deal a little differently now after coronavirus. Uh, how concerned are you moving forward about the uh, the Phase One trade deal holding up?
3: Well, I think it is important for uh, us to have a steady and consistent message with relative to the Phase One agreement. I mean, it's fairly it, it, it's true I think that the Chinese at least on the technical issues, the sanitary and phytosanitary issues that were part of this agreement that they have followed through. I mean, they recently allowed the use of uh, whey permeate in, in food, uh, which is going to open up a new market opportunity for us in China. Uh, so they've gone through the, the process of, of checking off things that they agreed to do. The issue, of course, is whether or not they're purchasing at the level uh, necessary to reach the agreed upon $200 billion of additional purchases. Uh, I think it's fair to say that they're not on track to do that. Uh, they may have a lot of justifiable reasons for not doing that. Um, I, so I think the administration has got to give us a consistent message here uh, that, that as the trade representative, Ambassador Lighthizer, and Secretary Mnuchin have indicated, hey, this agreement's on track. Everything's uh, working the way it should. Uh, and the president uh, occasionally sort of, you know, rattling the saber, so to speak. I'm not sure that that's particularly helpful. Um, it would be better if we just simply had a consistent message here. Um, uh, the hope, obviously, is that we never get to a circumstance where the decision is made to essentially pull back from that phase one agreement, because that would reignite a retaliatory tariffs and make it very difficult for us to enter a market, which which is a, a good market for us, especially on the, on the high-value protein uh, side.
1: And finally, is there a market we should be watching that has a lot of potential that you are really excited about that we could see a growth in U.S. dairy exports too.
3: Well, this, one of the largest cheese importers in the world is the United Kingdom. And as the administration begins negotiations with the U.K., you know, the hope is that that negotiation leads to a trade agreement that gives us access to that market uh, that doesn't put us in a situation where we have to com- combat or compete with uh, the geographic indications that the monopolization of cheese names by the EU. If we have open and free access to that market, that's, uh, I think, a significant opportunity for us. Uh, I think it's uh, important for the administration to begin discussions with Kenya. Uh, While it may be a long-term play, uh, the reality is that uh, the African continent is going to be home to probably half of the new population in the world over the next uh, 15, 20 years. And as governments stabilize, as middle classes grow, their consumption patterns are going to change in much the same way that we see in Asia. And so the bottom line is that's new opportunity for us, especially if we have a sort of a foothold and the Kenya Free Trade Agreement would begin that process of creating that foothold. So a lot of opportunity. uh, And of course, Asia remains uh, uh, critically important.
1: As always, Mr. Secretary, good to talk with you. Thank you for the update. Good to hear some uh, positive uh, export numbers even during these troubling times. Thank you very much. You bet, Mike. Stay well. All right, you too. Take care. Tom Vilsack, former Secretary of Agriculture, now President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. All right, we'll take a break. And when we come back, i get got some uh, thoughts and reaction on this dicamba court ruling that's uh, leaving a lot of farmers with some questions. So what can they do What about what they've already done as far as the use of the product? Where do we go from here? We're going to talk more about that Coming up, stay with us. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams
1: on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. The latest chapter in the dicamba story came a few days ago when the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals vacated the registrations of three dicamba herbicides, leaving a lot of farmers with a lot of questions and a lot of uncertainty. So a lot of uh, states are looking at this and trying to get some clarity on this. Joining us now is Jean Payne, president of the Illinois Fertilizer and Chemical Association. Jean, thank you for joining us. I know you were waiting for word from the Illinois Department of Agriculture, some guidance from them. You finally got it. So what's the latest on this for Illinois?
4: So we had a late afternoon call with the Illinois Department of Agriculture, and they had spent a better of yesterday, Mike, just reviewing this and reading the court ruling and, and looking at, you know, the directives of the Illinois Pesticide Act, which governs our uh, use of pesticides in Illinois, and they were um, quite clear with us last night that, that their belief and, and their interpretation and, and their message was that it is, a, in Illinois, a stop sale, stop distribution, and stop use of uh, Ex- Xtendamax Ingenia and Fexapan, which were the three products named in that court order. It's very unusual it Cancellation of pesticide labels has happened before, Mike, and usually when courts get involved, they order the EPA to vacate the registrations, and then a process ensues. This one was unusual because the court itself vacated the registrations, kind of sort of um, going really over top of U.S. EPA's head, and that's why there's confusion amongst the states, because we're normally used to U.S. EPA leading this, and now we have a court kind of leading it instead, but Illinois... Um, You know, based on how our pesticide act is written, we can only use pesticides in Illinois that are federally registered. And it was the Department of Ag feeling from the court ruling that the court made it very clear that those registrations no longer exist. And so we had to send that message out to our members because we didn't want farmers or retailers getting in their spray cabs this morning in Illinois and not knowing that they were applying a product that technically is not labeled for use on soybeans or right. any uses of those crops, not just soybeans, but any use on the label is no longer legal.
1: Yeah, and I want to get into that, but does this create a situation where different states will interpret this differently then?
4: Yes, uh, it already has. Um, Minnesota kind of fell in line with Illinois in a bulletin this morning, but Indiana uh, pesticide regulations are dip- written a little differently. Their Office of State Chemists at Purdue kind of manages the program. So they do have the right to continue registration even if the federal registration um, is not, no longer exists. So they are waiting for US EPA to give guidance and continuing to allow use. Um, I don't think Missouri has chimed in on this yet. Some states are starting to chime in this morning and saying, you know, like Illinois, no use, but not all of them, Mike. It, And that creates even a higher level of frustration and a feeling of unfairness, right, that, you know, the Indiana or Missouri farmers may still have access to this for, you know, might be a short amount of time, but still do while we had to send the difficult message to Illinois that you do not have access any longer.
1: Okay, so what happens on fields where it's already been applied?
4: Well, it was legal up until the court hearing, and and I would even go so far to say is that yesterday no one really knew what the status was until we had the clear message from the Department of Ag. So I really look at today as the day that the message had to be sent out, and people need to understand that this product is not legal for use on soybeans or any any crops that it's labeled for. So you really need to be working with your retailers on other options which do exist, and we're working hard in our industry to provide those options to farmers, but. Remember, um, in growing a food crop, which soybeans are, it's very, very important for the public trust and the whole food safety framework that we have out there, which relies on, on legal use of pesticides on these crops that are going to go into the food supply. These environmental groups and activist groups that filed this lawsuit that resulted in this finding are going to be watching us very closely. They had a victory on Wednesday, but they're going to continue to see how agriculture, responds and complies with this. And if they see widespread, you know, summing of the nose or saying, well, I'm going to do it anyway because I've got the product in my shed and I already bought it. And, you know, I just caution people to be very cognizant that we have to continue, um, even though we feel like we've been wronged to do the right thing as, as the legal process of the registrant and uh, farm groups. And all of us are, are looking at options with US EPA to, to help unravel this a little bit hopefully but as of today that's just not the case and so you know we have to do the right thing and make sure that we apply only legal products to to a crop that's going to go into the food supply
1: what is the penalty if someone applies it today or or in the future now until you know, this is clear is, is 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 there some yeah. kind of a, a recourse here or what what happens
4: well Using an unregistered pesticide is much more serious than just having an accidental spray drift or maybe a wind gust that uh, caught your product and carried it onto someone else's property. Using a knowingly using a product that is not legal to be used on a crop is a whole other level of a of a violation of the Illinois Pesticide Act. It would be considered, I'm sure, a willful violation, which puts you know the applicator in a whole level category of um, you know when you when you become a certified licensed applicator you are trained to read and follow the labels. And so if you choose not to do that, your certification is in jeopardy. And that's why this is so for the ag retailers, because our business is to commercially apply these products, and we cannot have applicators out there applying illegal products and, and, and not just being told they can no longer spray dicamba, but their license allows them to spray all kinds of other products for the farmers too. So that's why it was important for IFCA to get that message out to our commercial applicators. But again, Mike, it applies to all applicators and needs to be taken very seriously.
1: And real quick, Gene. So the next step, we wait to see what maybe what EPA is going to do about this. Will they maybe challenge the decision? You think?
4: You know, they've been very quiet. Um, the state departments of ag have been waiting for some kind of um, guidance from US EPA. I'm sure US EPA is trying to figure out. If this is unusual for them too to have one of their labels vacated by a court versus them being instructed to vacate a label and go through that process. So I can only imagine um, the intensity of that, Mike. And hopefully in the next 48 hours, maybe we'll know if there's a, a crack right. or some other window that we can work with.
1: We'll watch and see. Jean, thank you for the update. We appreciate it. Take care.
4: Thank you, Mike. Take care.
1: Gene Payne, president, the Illinois Fertilizer and Chemical Association. So maybe different depending on what state you're in. So check on the uh, availability, the use of dicamba where you go from here. Have a safe weekend, everyone.